out message notes. The scriptures are found in there. They'll also be on the screen. You can go to the app and follow along as well. But we're going to go into Luke chapter 23, verse 32. And this is a passage where we find Jesus. He has been flogged. He has been whipped. He has been led down the Via Della Rosa and has carried his cross to the place of his demise and ultimately his death. But what we see here is it's not just Jesus. Jesus is not the only one being crucified on this day. There will be two people with him. The Bible records them as criminals, as thieves. And that's where we pick up in verse 32. It says two others. Everybody say two. Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. Who's him? It's Jesus. These men we know were rebels. Now, when I look at the text, for me personally, I can relate to these thieves. Immediately, something jumps out to me because I'm a rebel. I know what it's like to live in rebellion. And if I were to be candid, I would say we all know what it's like to live in rebellion. Now, I have never rebelled against the government, never rebelled against the Roman Empire, but I have lived in rebellion to God. I know what it's like to live my life on my own terms. I know what it's like to do what I want to do, regardless of what God is asking me to do. I know what it's like to know what's right and to still do what's wrong. I have lived as a rebel. And the truth is we all live as a rebel at some point in our lives. Since the fall of Adam and Eve, sin entered the heart of man. And really sin is a sickness, it's a disease. Each and every one of us were born with it. David pins it so well in Psalms 51.5. He states the condition that we all find ourselves in. He says, for I was born a sinner. So in other words, you were born this way. He says, from the moment my mother conceived me, I was in sin. That each and every one, it wasn't something you asked for. It wasn't something you wanted. You didn't have a choice in the matter. You were born in sin. And as sinners, there is a penalty that comes to rebellion. When we rebel, the penalty is death. Look at Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is It's what we deserve. Now look, we may not die physically in the moment when we sin, but I want you to know we have fully been separated from God. We have experienced spiritual death. So when we look at the rebels on these crosses, we can clearly see this is a picture of us. So we read the men have been let out. They're being executed by Jesus. They're paying the penalty for their sin and rebellion. Now, historians show us and believe that these two men were a part of the uprising with Barabbas. Now, you will remember Barabbas just a day earlier was released by Pilate. He was given his freedom even though he deserved death as a criminal. Pilate had a custom before the night of the Feast of Passovers. He would allow the people, the Jews, to decide one of two prisoners that could be released. He did this to win favor with the Jews and so that they would believe they had a governor who listened to them, that their voice mattered. And so just a day earlier, the choices were Jesus and Barabbas. Now, Jesus is innocent. 
We know this. We know the life of Jesus. We would have seen him. They would have seen him. He would have been teaching out in the open. Jesus didn't live his life in the shadows. Jesus didn't live his life obscurely. He was out in the open. In fact, the crazy thing about this story is he would have healed many of their relatives. He would have spoken truth into their hearts. And yet we find on this day they chant crucify him. And we see Barabbas. See, Barabbas... He was a known killer. He was a a revolter. He was someone that stirred up the city in revolt. And he was a criminal worthy of death. And yet it is on this day that we see Jesus taking the place of Barabbas, the one who deserved to die. And these two thieves are dying with him. Now these two men being crucified with Jesus They were in the same place. Look at verse 33. It says, and when they came to the place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right, one on his left. Now, this is the climax of human history. You can imagine heaven has paused. The angels are looking down in horror. They look in an unfathomable way to see what is taking place. Jesus The son of God, the one that created the heavens and earth and created them is now hanging on a cross, being crucified. Jesus, all God, all man. And see, the problem is when we look at a cross, you know, you say cross, we see it as costume jewelry. We see it as fashion wear. We have it as accessories. Many of us have a cross as decor in our homes. We've lost the real stigma of the horror that's associated with this instrument of death. See, a cross would have been an instrument of torture. It would have been something that would have been cruel and unusual and a way for people to die. Now, we understand that crucifixion was not invented by the Romans. It was invented by the Persians in 300 BC. But the Romans had perfected it. They had crucified tens of thousands of people. Some of them were criminals and some of them were innocent. They did it in a way so that they would strike fear and terror in the people that they had conquered so that they would live as submitted citizens to Rome. And so when someone would have seen the cross, it would have struck terror at the core of their being. And yet we see here, Jesus has been nailed to the cross. The son of God dying for the sins of humanity. And the two thieves, they're next to him. Look, read in verse 35. Now what happens is the crowd is watching the leaders. They're scoffing. So they're ridiculing Jesus. And they say, he saved others. They said, let him save himself. If he really is the son of God, if he is the Messiah, the chosen one. And the soldiers mocked him too by offering drink of sour wine. They called out to him, if you are the king of the Jews. Now, isn't it interesting that the enemy wants you to question what God has declared. Many of your lives, God has declared something over your life and what the enemy wants to do is put a seed of doubt in your mind that what God has declared is not true at all. We find that in the scriptures right here. They say, save yourself. Come on, Jesus, save yourself, save yourself. If you are, if you are, save yourself. Now look at 38, it says a sign. Everybody say a sign. Say it louder, a sign. A sign was fashioned above him with these words. This is the king 
of the Jews. Now, I find this amazing when you look at the scripture, when you look at this passage. The truth is in plain sight, but the people cannot comprehend it. They can see it with their eyes, but they do not understand. That sign actually declared who Jesus was. He is the king of the Jews, not only the Jews, but the king of kings and the Lord of lords. They are spiritually illiterate. They are spiritually blind. And in this moment, they see, but they can't see. And I wonder if that's not a picture of many in the world today. Maybe it's some of us sitting here in this place this morning that we are seeing, but we can't see what it really is. Look at what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded. So he has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They're unable to see the glorious light of the good news. So what does it mean? That means a lot of people walk around in life and they're spiritually blind. Many people think, God, I don't know what truth is. What is truth? Where do I find it? I don't believe God hides truth. I believe many times it's in plain sight, but the problem is we are blinded by the enemy. But what I've learned is truth can only be seen through the eyes of humility. That we have to say, God, show me what's real. God, show me the truth of your word. Show me the truth of my life. God, show me. Because I know you can't see what's really there when you've already made up your mind. And the crowd and the leaders and the soldiers, they had already made up their mind about Jesus. They were already prideful. They understood and thought they knew best. And so for them, they couldn't even see the truth that was in front of them. They were telling Jesus, come on, Jesus, perform. Come on, Jesus. Just like a little monkey. Come on, perform, perform. How many know God doesn't perform for us? God doesn't perform for anybody. God's got a will, and he's going to let his will be done regardless of what you say, regardless of what you do. And I find many times people will say, prove it, just like these religions. Come on, if you love me, prove it. Yeah, anybody ever heard that? If you love, you really love me, prove it. Come on, if you're really brave, prove it. Come on. If you're really smart, yeah, yeah, you, you know, and, and so someone told me once, are you scared? I said, bro, I ain't scared. I ain't no chicken. I ain't no chicken. I no punk. I was a teenager. I'll never forget. Hanging out with someone I shouldn't have been hanging out with. Young people, I want you to know who you hang out with matters. Show me your friends and I'll show you your destiny. Come on, parents. That'll preach right there. Mic drop, boom, walking off. Get your Easter message. It matters. And I'm a young teenager and uh, hanging out with a guy I shouldn't have been hanging out with. And he said, man, I think you're chicken. I'm like, I ain't chicken, bro. I ain't scared. I ain't no punk. Come on, man. And, and he said, well, prove it. I said, well, what you want me to do? He said, come on, let's sneak out tonight. Like, like for real sneak out. Not like 8 o'clock at night, 10 o'clock, like 2 o'clock in the morning sneak out. Anybody, don't do what I do or did. Don't do. I don't do it anymore. I'm an adult. He said, prove it. I said, what? Sneak out. Sneak out with me. All right? All right, I can do it. We lived in a two-story home, and my bedroom was on the second story. We had a trampoline in the backyard, and so here we are, 2 o'clock in the morning, leaning out the, the, the window, shh, getting out, getting in the roof, jump off the trampoline onto the ground, and I'm like, what's up, brother? I know chicken. Boom. He said, that's awesome, man. See, now, I didn't know what we were going to do. I was just going to prove I wasn't scared. I wasn't a punk. But now he had an agenda. How many know people typically have an agenda? So I said, what are we going to do? He said, we're going to see my girl. 
I'm like, bro, how many, if you'd have told me that, I'd be sleeping. I ain't a third wheel. Come on, somebody like, hey, you just go see your girl. But the truth is he didn't want to sneak out by himself. So he's going to tell me to prove it, prove it. Let me just tell you a long story short. The night did not go well for us. Somewhere in the middle of the night, the cops catch up to us. They busted us. And uh, our parents were woken up by the police officers with lights going at the house. And it was a crazy night. We were in so much trouble. And the crazy, his parents didn't even care. I was grounded for like a year and a half. In fact, I'm still grounded today. That's how crazy it was. (laughs) All from what? Prove it. Prove it. And what I've learned is this, when people try to get you to prove something, it's in an attempt by the enemy to get you out of the will of God. You ain't got to prove anything. Jesus was secure in the Father's love, and because of that, the opinions of others didn't pull him out of God's will. So when I'm secure in the Father's love, I don't care what anybody else thinks. I don't care what anybody else says. I'm not living for you. God, I live for you. God, I obey you. God, I love you. And regardless of what people say, they are not going to move me out of your will. Can I get an amen? Amen. Don't let people move you out of God's will for your life. Jesus didn't. Then let's continue in verse 39. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. What's that mean? That means he ridiculed Jesus. Look at what he says. He says, so you're the Messiah, are you? You just hear the tongue and you go, oh, you're the Messiah, aren't you? Huh? And then look what he says again. Prove it by saving yourself. And I find it very interesting. He doesn't stop with that. Look at what he says. And us too while you're at it. Isn't it interesting that he can be insulting Jesus and in the same sentence desperate for hope? What I've learned is people in the world can be extremely mean with their words. They can be extremely mean in their actions and yet the whole time desperate for hope, desperate for something real, not, not, not going off of what they say or what they do. You've got to know this. When people don't know God, they are desperate for something that is real. Not religion, not some made up thing that's dressed up and shows up on a Sunday morning, but we're talking about a real authentic relationship with the God who created us. That's what people are desperate for. He's desperate for hope. He's desperate. Verse 40, but the other criminals, so this is what, check it out. He's, he, he's saying, so you got one that's criticizing Jesus, that's ridiculing Jesus. Now we find the other one protesting against that other criminal. He says, don't you fear God even when you've been sentenced to die? So he's coming to Jesus' defense. See, we deserve death for our crimes, but this man has done nothing wrong. Now, it's a very interesting scripture. If you just read the account by Luke, if you just went through it, you'd be like, well, that's normal. Okay, you got one that loves Jesus and one that doesn't love Jesus. I mean, that's a great picture of us. But what we don't see out of this passage, but we do get out of Matthew's passage, is that this criminal didn't start off loving Jesus. This criminal didn't have a good disposition towards Jesus. Look at what Matthew shows us. It's the same account but a different version of what's taking place. It gives us more of a complete picture of this event. It says, in the same way, the rebels, plural. That means both of them. 
They were crucified with him. They also heaped insults on Jesus. So they started off in the same position. So so when you understand that, you go back to the verse. This is a very amazing point in the text. Why? Because he started off ridiculing Jesus, but now something has changed. The depth of his soul, his very being, his thoughts, his belief system, every part of him has now shifted. What's happened? What's taken place? He's had a moment with God. He's had a moment. And we find that in this moment, we don't have all the details, but in this moment, it has literally shifted the very being of his soul. And I know many of us in this place, you've had that moment with God, that very moment that shifted everything. You were going in one direction, but you had a moment with God, and you now are going a different direction. A moment with God will change everything. I remember Phyllis and I, 15 years ago, we haven't always lived for God. We haven't always been pastors. We were young, married, entrepreneurs. We had some real estate investments, but we had started a restaurant. Lots of employees doing well. Things were going good. Just gotten married. Been married about a year, year and a half But we were struggling, the pressures of life, payroll, payroll taxes, the business, our marriage, just being young and married. And and you know, it's the communication thing, spouses, you know what I'm talking about? She's saying one thing, you're like, that is not what I heard. Come on, men. Then the man's saying something, and that wife is like, clearly that's not what you said. Anybody ever have, don't, you know know what I'm saying? Just just communication, just challenges. This is getting terrible. I mean, it... Like we had just gotten married in my mind and yet we are walking towards a divorce. We can't even stand being with each other. I mean, it is rough. And so I'm hanging out with a friend and hanging out and my friend offers me some drugs. Phyllis and I were there and he said, man, you know what? You got to cope. And it's interesting, isn't it? When, When people offer you, it's free the first time. You know what I'm talking about. Don't act like y'all holy. You got your suit. You know what I'm talking about. Y'all got quiet on me. You're like, my kid's sitting next to me, pastor. Your kid knows. Free the first time. Well, man, it's amazing, right? I mean, listen, anybody said that they're, they're not amazing? They are amazing. But they lead you to death and destruction. So we start to cope and, you know, the party and we're doing drugs and alcohol and the party scene. We just did it on the weekends. We're just trying to, like, we would survive the week just to get to the weekend. And the drugs would numb us so that we could cope. And it's amazing. We fight all week. You're on drugs. like, oh, I love you. I love you. You know what I'm talking about. Can we just be real? Let's just be, let's just be real. The problem is it doesn't stop on weekends, right? Now I need it all the time. Monday and Tuesday, and I'm just trying. And then what went from weekends to weekdays now is binges. We'd be up for days, drugs at night, drugs in the day, four or five days. Just trying to cope. Just trying to cope. Just trying to exist, just trying to make it, just trying to. 
I'll never forget how I felt, you know, I was raised in church. I mean, the kind of church where we went Sunday mornings, we went Sunday nights, we went Wednesday nights. I mean, you think it's long for an hour and 10 minutes on a Sunday morning. We went to church. Like it was like three and a half hours every service. We had revival every service. And now we get frustrated with it. an hour and 12 minutes, Pastor. Come on, come on, Pastor. Preach. <laughs> the problem was I began to feel hopeless. See, I knew what was right, but I was living in rebellion. I knew God was the answer, but I felt ashamed. I felt condemned. I felt like I wasn't good enough. Who could love me when my life was a mess? Everybody else looked like they had it perfect. They had it all together, and my life is falling apart. I'll never forget February 7, 2003, 15 years ago. It's 12.30 at night. Everybody's getting ready to go out. It's party central. Everybody's at the house. I'm in the bathroom just chilling. Wasn't looking for God, but God came looking for me. Felt his presence. First, I thought, man, you're messed up. I was pretty messed up. I was surprised. I'm like, you know what I'm talking about? You're like, whoo. You're like, whoa, that might be the bus. Like, that's, no, is that really you? <laughs> I felt his presence again, and I was so desperate. Like the thief on the cross, help me. I'll never forget. If you're real, I'll serve you. God was in the place. So I run out the bathroom, tell Phyllis God's in the place, and she's she's laughing. <laughs> she's like, You're messed up. I'm like, I am a little messed up, but God is in the place. And she must have seen it in my eyes because she said, okay, what do you want to do? I said, let's get everybody out of the house. Get everybody out. Kick them out. We start kicking them out. They're all mad. You're a buzzkill. But the king of hope had walked into my house. I couldn't refuse. Kicked them out. And for five hours, Phyllis and I had a divine visitation with God. It was a moment. So when I look at this message and I look at this thief, what I see is he had some kind of a moment, some kind of an encounter with God like what I had. There, there, he didn't change places. He's still on the hill of Golgotha. He is still affixed to the cross. He is about to die and yet... He's had a moment. But how do we know this? We know because his anger has turned to compassion. His pride has turned to humility. His hatred has turned to love. The man he was ridiculing hours earlier, he is now defending. His soul has been changed. And so as your pastor, you know, 
for 15 years, I surrendered to God and I told him, I'll do anything you want me to do. Never thought I'd be able to pastor this great church. Never thought. It's amazing. I thought, you know, I'll scrub toilets. And I've done plenty of that, trust me. I'll do anything you want me to do. I don't need a title. I don't need a position. I'll do anything. See, he saved me. But I did tell him this. I said, God, for the rest of my life, I want to help people have moments. Just like what I had. Not, not religion. I mean, religion kills Come on, somebody. I don't need to be addressed up. Fake. Like, I think that's the problem with religion. See, we get bound up. See, religion will tell you you need a better version of you. No, dead people don't have a better version. They are dead. Religion will have you spinning your wheels. No, no, what you need is you need the dead to come to life. That God, I would be alive in you. Yes, some of you walked in, you feel dead. You know what I'm talking about? You got a smile on your face, but pain in your heart. I've been there. I know what it's like. I know what it's like. So I told God, I said, God, help me to lead people in moments. And when I was studying this, God showed me. Because, so, you know, I'm perplexed. I'm like, man, how could the transformation? Because if I could find out how the transformation happened, Maybe I could lead a church to experience this as well. And it's in the text. The thing that created the shift, the thing that created the the change, it's in the text. It was his focus. Your focus determines your future. What do you mean? Look, he was focused on the king while the other one was focused on the crowd. He's focused on Jesus. And somehow in that focus, God touched his life and changed him. The other one's focused on the crowd. So what's he doing? He's mocking Jesus. He's doing all the things the crowd is doing. And we know that Matthew 7, 13, look at what it says. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter into it. So when you go with the crowd, you go to destruction. It's the same thing that happened to me when I was partying. It's the same thing that happened to me when I snuck out. What was I doing? I was following the crowd. I was focused on the crowd. But every time my life has turned around, I've been focused on the king. And we see that in John 14, 6. Look, he said, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through. There are not a lot of ways to heaven. There is one, and his name is Jesus. Jesus. One way, one truth, one God. So here's the question. When you're walking through the pain, when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, when you're walking through your troubled life and your times, where is your focus? Wherever that is, that's going to determine your future. You focused on God. You focused on the world. Because I believe if the enemy can cause you to focus on the wrong thing, he will rob you of the salvation that is right in front of you. I mean, don't we see that? Look, we've got both criminals. They're both guilty. 
We have both criminals. They're in the same proximity as Jesus. They both saw and heard everything that happened at the cross. Both are suffering. Both are in pain. Both are dying and both needed forgiveness. Yet one recognizes his need and the other one doesn't. And look at what it says in verse 42. Then he said, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replies, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. Salvation has taken place in the life of a rebel. He understood the condition of his soul and he cried out to Jesus. And what we must understand is until you see yourself as a sinner, you will never see your need for a savior. That Jesus, I am a sinner. That at the core of my being, I was born that way. I didn't ask to be born that way. But because of the fall of man, that is how I was conceived. But God, you have the solution to the disease. Salvation. We understand this, that the cross brings us to a place of decision. And that's really what Easter's all about. We're going to go hunt some eggs. It's going to be amazing. Get lots of candy, lots of cavities. It's awesome. But let us not walk out of here without realizing the importance of what's taking place on Calvary. That these two thieves, they represent us. One will accept and receive salvation. The other will miss the very thing that was right in front. And it's all based on our focus. Is your focus on God? Is your focus on your life? Is your focus on others? Is your focus on the world and what you don't have? But I promise you this, if we will shift the focus of our life, Easter will not just be something you attended. Easter will be something you experienced this morning. The resurrection power of God on the inside of each and every one of us. And as we close this morning, I wonder if we could just bow our heads and close our eyes and want to bring us to a point of decision. My hope is that we would put our eyes on God, that we would this morning call out to Jesus to save us, to forgive us, to be our Lord and our Savior. Now, I know there are many that have already done that here this morning. But I also believe there are many here this morning that God brought you here for this moment. And with no moving around, no looking around, no doing anything but reflecting on yourself, I wonder if there are those of you here this morning, maybe you relate to my story. Maybe you were in a place and are in a place of desperation and hopelessness. And I love this. Jesus didn't judge the criminal. He loved him. And I want you to know you have a church body that loves you right where you are. Jesus loves you so much. He gave his life for you for this moment right here, right now. And though there are many that have already come to this moment, there are many that haven't. I'm not going to ask you to stand up or come down or do anything like that. What I am going to ask you to do is in this moment, would you raise your hand in an act of surrender and just say, Jesus, I need you. Be my Savior. 
be my Lord. I surrender all to you right now in this moment. He's in this place. Heads bowed and eyes closed. If that's you, just, just right now, Jesus, I surrender. I give you everything. See, our life is not working without him. What do we, we say, I surrender. Just, just, it's an act of surrender. Just raise your hand. I see you all over this place. Thank you, Jesus. Church, can you tell them how proud you are? This is what I want to do. I want, I just want to lead us in a prayer. It's not the prayer that saves us. It's really the belief in our heart, the condition of our lives. And we just say, say this, say, Jesus, I need you. Save me. Forgive me. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Fill me with your spirit. I give you everything right now. I give you all of my hopes. I give you all of my dreams. I give you my future. I surrender it all right now to you. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, worship God this morning. Man, isn't God so good?